0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker,
1: musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr.
0: Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. As you know, I am all about taking charge of our thoughts. So whenever I come across something that's related to our brain functioning or our cognitive processes and how we can equip ourselves with knowledge that will help us cultivate empowered mindsets for empowered living, when I come across anything related to all of the above... I am on it, and I want to share it with you, which is why I've invited Dr. Tracy Alloway to the program today to talk about her new book, Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You. Her book is jam-packed with research, but super easy to read and engaging and takeaway messages at the end of every chapter so that you can implement into your life right now Easy, simple strategies that will help you harness the power of the female brain and recognize that it is your greatest asset, despite some of the myths that are out there. And of course, because this is love and life, I'm going to ask Dr. Alloway some specific questions about the female brain and attachment styles, oxytocin, how we can better understand our attraction to those with whom we might like to partner, and also once we are in partnership, how we can cultivate and enhance our partnership to keep the spark alive. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Tracy Alloway. Tracy Pacquiam Alloway, PhD, is an award-winning psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker. She has published 15 books and over 100 scientific articles on the brain and memory. Dr. Alloway shares her insights about the brain with Fortune 500 companies, and her research has been used in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Bloomberg. As a teaching professor and in her private psychology practice, based in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. Alloway helps many women learn how to use their uniquely female brains to live their best lives. My conversation with Dr. Tracy Alloway, right after this. Dr. Alloway, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's fantastic. I love your work. I love following you on Instagram. And when I saw a while back that you were working on a book called Think Like a Girl, I knew I wanted to reach out and make sure that I had the opportunity, if you were willing, to share this work with my community. And the theme of my podcast is. Psych research to help us thrive in love and life, and my motto is, is: take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. So very cognitive, very much about the brain. So this is a really a perfect fit, very much aligned with my community. So thanks again for joining us.
1: I love it. Thank you, and I have to say likewise. You know, following each other in social media, I love the way you set this up. I love the feedback that you get from your community. So I'm just so excited to be able to share this with you today.
0: Oh, Wonderful. Let's start with a little bit of your journey because I know oftentimes as psychologists, we may have literature that we are interested in and our research may involve one domain and we may meander around. Did you start with a focus on women and understanding cognitive processes and how they differ from men? Or was this an evolution of your journey as a researcher? It was definitely an evolution. Um, You know, I
1: started (laughs) off as a postdoctoral researcher looking at memory in the brain. And even back Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, people would ask me questions. Well, what about the young girls in the classroom? How do they look? How is their memory working differently from the young boys in the classroom? And I began to see, you know, as a scientist, I, I would read these. Research articles, I began to notice that it seemed to be a one size fits all. That typically we talk about behavior and how the brain is working with a very broad brushstroke. But as I began to explore my own uh, research findings, my own data, I began to see nuances that sometimes we respond differently as women than men, and sometimes we don't. And I wanted to explore a little bit more why do we do this? How can we maximize this? And that's what really led me to write this book.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. And sometimes gender differences are noted and sometimes they aren't noted as much. And then sometimes they are myths or expectations that we have about, especially when we're talking about young children and boys versus girls. And then we find that when we look at the research, some of those myths are absolutely refuted by the research. I found it interesting. You would look at working memory and in the book you talked about how the smarter you are, the better liar you are. (laughs) And also there's a gender effect as well. Can you explain that? Yes. So in my
1: own research, I started looking, first of all, at children and lying behavior because, you know, a lot of the research looks at things like theory of mind, whether we're considering the other person when we tell a lie. You know, and as a parent, I was also interested in this topic as well. (laughs) And so what I found was really interesting, the higher our working memory is, and working memory is this idea of, of active memory. It's the memory that we use to listen to incoming information, map it with information that we already hold in our brain. And I found that the more strong, the stronger our working memory is, the better we are able to kind of tackle and keep all these different tabs open, Like. What did I tell the listener? Do they already know? What do they know? What don't they know? What can I get away with? And I found that that was evident in children as young as seven years of age. And what I wanted to introduce in this chapter is, first of all, this uh, this idea—the myth that you know—do women lie more than men? And I, you know, I don't want it to be a point of contention in in relationships or partnerships where you can mm-hmm. kind of say who lies more than the other. But I I thought it was really interesting to, first of all, uh, find that women are better liars than men with very specific types of lies. So one piece of research, they put men and women in a brain scanner and they asked them to lie about general information as well as lie about personal information. And what was interesting is that when women were telling lies about personal information, so things like, how old are you? How long have you been in your job? Uh, What kind of things are you good at? You know, things about directly relating to themselves. The brain scans were showing that the front of the brain, the working memory home, the prefrontal cortex, showed less activation uh, compared to when men would lie about those same types of personal questions. So the researchers suggest that this is an indication that when women lie about personal information, it is less effortful for us. It is easier <laughs> for us to lie about this types of questions, <laughs> types of information. Well, again, they say there may be a cultural reason for that. We may be penalized as women if we don't present ourselves a certain way, either in the workplace, in relationships, even in friendships, social interactions. And so as a result, we become quite skilled at presenting ourselves a certain way when it comes to personal information. And so our front of our brain, our prefrontal cortex doesn't have to work as hard when we uh, respond to those questions.
0: It's so interesting because, again, it kind of flies in the face of so many of the women in my community who are on the dating scene and they do feel frustrated that there are these guys out there who are being disingenuous and that they're bombarded with all these lies. And then here to find out, well, actually, we're pretty good at lying when we want to as well.
1: Yes. And here's where it gets even more nuanced. So again, researchers talk about different types of lies. And of course, you know, if you do a quick glance at research on lying, you, you see lots of numbers. How often do we lie in a day? But I was more interested in, again, this, this distinction of, of men and women and, and found that there are two types of lies. There's what researchers call an antisocial lie or a lie to protect yourself. So, for example, if you think of young children, did you just eat the cookie? And, you, you know, they've got crumbs all over their face. No, no, I didn't eat the cookie. That's an antisocial lie. We, we lie to protect ourselves. We don't want to time out um, or we want more cookies. And so we're we're quite skilled at protecting ourselves by telling a little lie like that. Another type of lie is called the pro-social lie, and that's where we lie to protect someone else. So for example, did your brother eat the cookie? And we may lie to protect them because we don't want them to get in trouble. And here again, there's adult research, so research looking at adults, where women would be more likely to lie to protect someone else than themselves. Now, this fascinated Mm me. Again, I wanted to take it back to childhood to kind of look to see how far back can we go before we begin to see these types of differences emerging. So I worked with four and five-year-old children and I found that even at that age, the young girls in my uh, scientific study would be more likely to protect someone else than to lie about themselves. So it was a fun little game. They just had to take these paper balls and shoot baskets in them. And then they were asked, you know, did you cheat? Did you cross the line? Did you pick up the ball and throw it more than once or even put it in the basket to get a prize if you made more baskets? They were less likely to lie about themselves. But when asked about a researcher, you know, what we call a stooge or someone that's set up to kind of intentionally cheat the game and scam the game. The young girls in my study would be more likely to say, oh, no, they didn't, they didn't cheat. They didn't walk over and put the ball in the basket to get a prize because they wanted to protect them. So we see even as young as four, the young girls have this idea of pro-social lying in place.
0: That is so fascinating. And as a developmental psychologist, I'm always, of course, going back to the age old question. And what do you think, Dr. Alloway? Do you think that there's the nature, the nurture, the both? Of course, ultimately, there's always an interaction at work, but what do you think is going on with girls, even at that that tender age, that they're already very others-focused, right? They're concerned about their little community, their little group of friends. And we do know that women are socialized to be sensitive and nurturing to others. But we also know there's got to be a biological element at work as well. What do you think about it with this particular concern?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think specifically when we look at pro-social versus anti-social line, there's definitely a cultural facilitation or encouragement of that. We encourage girls to play well together. We reward them. In another chapter, I talk even about how we praise girls for their effort rather than their ability. So we, we really, from a very young age, encourage them to be other-focused, to be pro-social. And this just extends to them wanting to protect the community, as you indicated.
0: It's interesting because it plays into so many different domains of, as adult women, and as you spoke to, it it plays into our work and uh, relationships, the way that we behave in the workplace. And I know there's research on even communication mannerisms and the ways that we speak, and women are more likely to ask questions, and even when they're in- positions where they are the superior in a work relationship, they're more likely to ask for something to be done rather than to direct and, and say something should be done. This must be mm-hmm. done. And that's interesting because sometimes then, unfortunately, because of the climate and the expectations in a work environment, they may not be taken as seriously or respected as much. So how does, think like a girl, how does it <laughs> help women in their professional context? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it
1: was one that you know I've explored a little bit from my uh, in my research lab. And also, I was just fascinated to see that a lot of women would report the same thing, that they were either told to act like a man, dress like a man, to be more masculine, if you will, in the workplace in order to be successful. Now, two things are uh, what I found. The first is another piece of research uh, from another lab identified that when women adopt what they identified as masculine traits. So needing to be loud, needing to be uh, right all the time, needing to come off a little aggressive even. And again, this is how the researchers defined masculine traits They were perceived as being a weaker leader by their male peers. So in other words, it backfired. When they adopted a, a demeanor, a leadership style that did not seem authentic to themselves, they ended up being perceived as a weak leader. In my own lab, I wanted to explore a little bit more about leadership styles and you know, just as you were describing this idea of asking questions and so on, typically the leadership research identifies leadership styles in, in two broad ways. One is what's called a transactional approach and this is more goal directed. So you have a deadline, you work towards that deadline. And then a transformative approach, a more collaborative team uh, building approach. And I think the first thing of interest to note here is that these leadership styles are not hardwired. It's not like a personality trait that you're born with, that you are more inclined to do versus another. It's really a style that we adopt based on the situation. So we may in one situation adopt a transactional approach because that's what the situation calls for. Oh, we may adopt a transformative approach because we want that creative, collaborative approach and, and input from our team. And so we focus more on that. Now, the second thing that I thought was interesting is when I conducted a research study, I found that when women try to adopt a style that was not authentic to themselves or what they felt was true to what the situation required, two things happened. The first, they reported experiencing more stress as a result of that. And second of all, they experience burnout a lot more quickly. So I think the takeaway when it comes to leadership or the way in which we conduct ourselves in a work environment is to be authentic to who we are. And the minute we try to adopt a leadership style or a communication approach that is not true to ourselves, first of all, it's perceived as weak, so it backfires. And second of all, it causes personal harm to our mental health.
0: That is so interesting. I'm wondering if the perception has to do with a sense that inauthentic posturing maybe comes off as overcompensating. So the woman is trying to act as if she's someone she isn't, and Mm. then it's perceived as that's not genuine, and you're probably even weaker than you are because you're trying to overcompensate.
1: It's possible. And certainly we know from other research on leadership in the workplace that there are many body language clues or signs that are perceived differently by men and women. So, you know, if women smile too much when they're trying to give a directive, it's perceived as a sign of weakness. So there are lots I I give think takeaways in the chapter so that the reader can walk away with some, you know, easy, immediately applicable skills for how to boost their confidence, how to boost their, uh, you know, how confident they feel going into the workplace rather than second guessing themselves.
0: Yeah, I love that about the the book. It's very accessible. It's it's chock full of research, but it's not it doesn't feel academic in tone in, in the best way. It feels very meaty but also accessible and fun to read. And I love your little takeaways at the end of each chapter to have that practical application of what the reader has just learned to be able to implement this knowledge right away into their lives in very manageable little doses. That I love the format of the book. Let's talk about the notion that women are so emotional when they're making decisions. And I think that's can be viewed very often as quite pejorative that they gotta be careful because they're just too emotional.
1: Yeah, this was actually the first chapter that I wrote. And um, you know, I talked about Serena Williams in that chapter and one of her games and in, in Grand Slam, and um, you know, her behavior was she was just reamed across sort of sports sites and so on for being emotional in her response when uh, similar male players who either, you know, conducted themselves similarly or even worse, just were laughed at and, you know, kind of joked about rather than having this whole negative um, persona placed on them. So I I was kind of intrigued by this disconnect that we represent, even in professional, very accomplished, successful women. So in my lab, what I did was I presented my participants, both male and female, with a very difficult dilemma. It's known as the trolley dilemma, and your listeners may have heard of it. It's actually made its way into some popular TV shows, but the setup is very simple. You are at a railway track and you see a train or a trolley hurtling towards you, and it's lost control and it's going to end up injuring or killing five people that are on the track that can't see the train coming at them. Now, you can save the day by switching the train's track to a different one. However, one person will end up still being uh, injured or mortally wounded. And so what would you do? This is the classic uh, moral trolley dilemma. And we do know from other research that this dilemma is taken so seriously by people in the study that it actually produces the same physiological stress and anxiety when people have to consider what they would do in this situation. So although it sounds you know, very artificial and you know, some of us might think, well, we never have to make these tough decisions in our everyday life. When we're presented with that, even in an artificial lab type setting, it produces that same stress and concern when we have to consider how we would respond. And certainly in my own lab, I had some participants just say, oh my gosh, I didn't know what I would do. I was so stressed. And some would even actually start crying just, thinking about yeah. having to you know, uh, uh, think about what they would do in that situation. Now, we do know that in the brain, we have two decision-making pathways. We have what's called a hot decision-making center that's housed in the amygdala, the emotional brain. And this is more, again, driven by emotions, how you're feeling. And the second pathway is called the cold decision-making center. And this is housed in the prefrontal cortex the front of the brain. And this is considered to be more the rational decision-making where you can weigh all your options, maybe even adopt a utilitarian approach. Now, what I found were two very interesting things. The first is other researchers have identified that when women are perceived to be, um, as you aptly indicated, emotional when they make decisions or even poor decision makers because of being emotional, this is actually a sign of women um, wanting to protect. So when they have a hard time making these kinds of difficult decisions, it stems from a desire to protect. So it's actually coming from a very positive place because they don't want to cause harm. They wanna prevent or protect against harm. And so as a result, women are perceived as being emotional decision makers. So that, that itself, I thought, was, was fascinating that you know, we have this, as you said, an, you know, this negative perception because of the decision making style when actually it's stemming from a very powerful place of wanting to protect other individuals. Now, what I thought was interesting is the second thing, and this is what I discovered in my lab, is that we can flip the switch. So let's say, for example, you're offered a job in another city and the first thing you think about is, well, you know, I don't want to let my boss down. What about my team? I've worked with them for so long. If I leave, who will fill the gap? Who will nurture them? And so, again, you see this idea of this need to protect, wanting to, you know, uh, prevent harm uh, to be caused coming into play. But how can you flip the switch? What can you do instead? And here's what I found that when I asked my participants to put their hand in a bucket of ice, we can flip the switch. And the reason for this is because it induces a stress response. It's just a minor response. It's acute, so it lasts only for a short period of time. And so you stick your hand in a bucket of ice just for one minute up to your elbow, and this induces a physiological stress response. So in my lab, I checked to uh, look at their skin responses and saw that they were indeed experiencing stress. They also reported experiencing more stress in that uh, condition. But here's what's interesting. Because of this stress response being activated, the amygdala was so busy focusing on that, on the hand in the bucket of ice, that it freed up the cold decision-making center, the front of the brain, to allow my participants to make a different decision in a cold or rational decision. So if you find yourself having to make a difficult decision and you're having a hard time moving away from thinking about other people and how that would affect them, find a bucket of ice and you can flip the switch in your brain.
0: <laughs> A very practical tip, right? <laughs> Maybe it's not going to feel so comfortable. <laughs> Just one minute, you can deal with it. <laughs> when I read that, I found it fascinating because it reminded me of the other research where people are asked to put their hands in buckets of ice and some are able to swear and others aren't. And the ones who are able to swear are able to keep their hand in the ice longer. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with that research. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with women that we should be swearing when we have our hand in the ice or not. My mother would say no. She would <laughs> Are you looking for customized, personalized gifts? Mug Shop Montreal by Bree Jackson has got you covered. She offers a beautiful selection of high quality, personalized custom products. What started off as a fun project for family and friends soon developed into a passion for creating custom keepsakes for anyone, for any occasion. She decided to take the plunge and follow her artistic vision by creating Mug Shop Montreal, a home-based business where she collaborates directly with her clients, using their inspiration to design a detailed, heartwarming souvenir that many have given as gifts or have decided to keep for themselves. You can visit her on Instagram and Facebook at Mug Shop Montreal to browse her lovely products. So let's talk a little bit about a subject that you cover in a couple chapters that my audience will be particularly interested in when you start talking about attraction and bonding and how we can use our our female brain to better understand the ways that we interact in relationships and particularly in romantic relationships. And you talk about attraction, you look at the motivation systems, dopamine, the reward system, help us understand what's happening when we're attracted to someone and how can we harness our attraction and put it toward being attracted to a good guy. (laughs)
1: Looking to the good guy part first, let me answer the first part of your question about the dopamine. Um, as your listeners might know, it is a feel-good hormone. It gets released when we do an activity we like, anything from eating a good meal, a good conversation, um, even if you get a like or comment on your social media post, and certainly when you find yourself attracted uh, to some potential love interest. And so we know that's like a reward. It's it's uh, released in the part of the brain, especially during the early stages of that romantic love, you know, that kind of giddy feeling, that rush that you get. Um when you are just that sense of euphoria where you're just constantly up as some people might describe it. Now, the benefit of that is that dopamine engages a secondary system in the brain and that is your motivation system. So because you are feeling good all the time, it motivates you to find a way to continue that feeling so you'd you know this would translate an attraction where you find a way to look at conversations that would engage the other person maybe even do things that they would like maybe you've never you know played baseball and you say hey let's go to a pitching field oh you know and that's clearly i don't play baseball but um you know, one of the things <laughs> that they would like to do that you want to engage with them on and so that dopamine has a really powerful and beneficial effect to tell a different part of your brain to say hey let 's make a plan. What do we need to do next to get this person you know interested to keep this conversation going so it's first of all it's it's great that that dopamine is being affected uh, in such a way the The kind of uh second part of your question about the the type and what we should look for, I thought this was fascinating because there was a, a huge survey done with thousands of people from lots of different countries. And really what they identified is is what we think about, which is, you know, you want a stable mate if, uh, you know, you're looking for a male partner. And if you're a male looking for a female partner, you're looking at attractiveness because you think from an evolutionary psychology perspective, this would be one that would, you know, help perpetuate your family line and so on. But what I thought was really more interesting is that that may not be the best approach for uh, satisfaction in a relationship. Instead of looking for those types of you know, stereotypical types in a relationship, we should be looking at personality types instead. Mm -hmm. So your listeners may have heard of the big five, the big five personality types. This is conscientiousness, so someone who's reliable or hardworking, agreeableness, someone who's, you know, assumes the best about uh, people, always kind of looking for that silver lining in a situation the third personality type, open to experiences. Uh, So they may be fascinated by new things, whether it's in what they read, what they listen to, conversations, and so on. Of course, extroversion is probably the most familiar one. And finally, neuroticism. And you know, neuroticism sometimes gets a bad rep, but they do have a positive side. This is the individual that's like, you know, the musician or the artist that, that is, has that quirky sense of humor, a little self-deprecating, uh, maybe a little self-conscious that comes across, again, humorous in the beginning, but obviously too much of that can, as researchers have found, actually be the death knell, especially in the early stages of a relationship. So here's what's interesting is that there's a certain personality type that is a predictor that can actually determine relationship satisfaction for the long run. And that is conscientiousness. So conscientiousness. This is this idea of self-discipline, being a little organized. So, you know, we've maybe even heard a lot in in the last few years, this idea of clean your room or make your bed. And this is a good indicator of whether you're organized, whether you can kind of pull yourself together. And this may be a, a very easy, visible sign of conscientiousness. And researchers have found that this indicates that that person is dependable, that that person will stick to their commitments. And this trait, tends to be a big predictor of relationship satisfaction the longer that couple has been together, because it indicates that they're more willing to work at that relationship, especially in major changes. Maybe if you move together to a different city, you know, whatever that major change is that you're coming to tackle as a couple, conscientiousness is a good indicator of long term satisfaction. Now, the caveat here is that if your listeners are younger or have young you know, young children uh, younger meaning in their in their twenties, um, conscientiousness at this age bracket may may turn up looking a little bit like a workaholic, maybe even a little bit like perfectionism, so don't necessarily discount those individuals thinking that oh they're not going to be a good potential match for me because conscientiousness is a trait. Does mellow out as we get older and can turn into someone who is dependable and who's willing to work hard, not just in life, but in your relationship as well.
0: It was so interesting when I read that because I've had Dr. Leonard Sachs on the program before, Mm -hmm. and he has looked at longitudinal studies where children are measured on these big five traits in third, fourth grade, Mm -hmm. and then they're studied 30 years later, and we find Mm -hmm. that by any kind of marker that we're looking for as far as financial stability, emotional maturity, happiness with Mm -hmm. relationships, friendships, family, romance, of course, that kids who score highly in conscientiousness, that's the biggest predictor of the five for having, again, quote unquote, a successful, happy, fulfilled, and highly functioning life. So it's interesting that this is a real, yeah, when we look at the big five, yeah, like you said, let's not write off someone who scores highly in neuroticism because they, they can be, like you said, kind of charming and quirky. But when we're looking for what most of my audience is looking for, which is I want to have happy partnership. I know that I that's on me. I need to work on myself. Of course, we want to present mm-hmm. the best version of ourselves to those with you. We hope to partner, but we're also looking for what are the traits that I should be careful to and be mindful in my pursuit. The mm-hmm. conscientiousness, which doesn't sound that sexy, Tracy, right? Like, like sure. the dependable guy. He's your guy. So right. So, but we right. want to recognize that, like you said, those traits that like conscientiousness, that really it is sexy. It should be sexy. And I've been talking a lot about values recently in the research that shows that those with whom we align in our Core values, our partnerships are just so much easier. There's just less to fight about, and the research substantiates that as well. And also that we emotional maturity, we need to find that is sexy. And you do talk about um, you talk about attachment styles a bit in the book as well, which gets into this where sometimes, unfortunately, because of our childhood experiences, we may be primed to have attachment styles that make it harder for us to find, for example, stability and conscientiousness and security to be sexy if we've been caught up in this pattern of I have an anxious attachment and so I'm drawn to that avoidant person because of that that very vicious cycle we get into. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you spoke to that in the book as well. I do. There's a whole chapter on bonding, and I love how
1: you bring that back to our childhood. I think this is certainly one situation where our interactions with our parents play such an important role and shaping role for future romantic relationships, because the bond that you form, and again, again, this is no way fixed. We can always learn yeah. new patterns of attachment. So I first of all wanna make that clear if you know, there's any of us thinking like, well, my relationship with my parents wasn't that great. We are, you know, that's the great thing about the brain. There is a sense of plasticity and we can learn new ways of attachment and, uh, you know, and, and teach ourselves that. But certainly as a, as a general principle, um we do see that for women in other words uh their attachment style the avoidant attachment style has a bigger impact and avoidant is this idea that uh you're reluctant to get close to other people but yet you tend to be overly dependent on them so you may be the kind of person that says oh i have trust issues and you know you may hear these kinds of words but their behavior shows that they're they feel so dependent on them and yet they they pull back it's sort of this this tension between not being able to trust and and yet being overly dependent. And if you think back on your relationship with your parent, maybe that your parent was distant or didn't give affection or security very easily. And so you felt you had to work really hard for that. And as a result, you would just suppress that need for intimacy because you didn't want to feel rejected. And you may bring that pattern into your romantic relationships as well, where of course, as humans, we're, whole, we're all hardwired to desire that attachment, to desire that closeness. And I talk about oxytocin. We talked about dopamine with attraction. When we're forming long-term bonds in relationships uh, and even in in any social connection, oxytocin kicks in. And this is the bonding hormone. Uh, Sometimes it's called the hug hormone or even the love hormone. And so here we are hardwired as humans to seek that out. So as a result, we desire that bond, but we are also so fearful of that rejection. And so we just have to be mindful of that pattern. And again, in the book, I talk about think takeaways of how to uh, work through that. And also, if you are a female and you're looking for a male partner, I talk about the kinds of attachment styles that have the biggest impact for men so that you know, if, we're, if we're seeking that kind of relationship, we can be aware of, of how to respond to those needs as well.
0: Yeah, I was struck by what you found because so many of the women in my community feel that they, by and large, they'd say that they feel more of that anxious attachment Mm -hmm. in their romantic pursuits and that they feel that the men are oftentimes avoidant. But you noted that actually men have that fear of abandonment in a relationship, which I would conceptualize that as a little bit more anxious. And you said that studies find that it's two times more important for men to have that security knowing that they would not be abandoned by their partner than for women.
1: Yes. And, you know, this may manifest itself as maybe texting all the time with some of these flooding behaviors that we see and not that we should necessarily enable that, but it's to, you know, just again, to be aware that when that's happening, they may have experienced abandonment. And, you know, again, research shows that that comes to play as early as six years of age. So for them, if they're not aware of their own attachment style, they may be bringing that into that relationship, not because of something they want to do to you as an individual but it's simply because that is what's natural it's it's almost like if you think of the way we walk that is simply the way that they have learned to love their whole life and have not maybe come to realize that that is not such an efficient or effective way to express love
0: I think it's so humanizing when we look at the research because so often, again, people in my community oftentimes feel like there's so many games being played and that people are out to hurt them. And I really don't believe that. And I spent many years myself on the (laughs) dating scene, as my community knows. I don't think that by and large people are out there to try to be predators. I think mostly people are wounded. They maybe haven't processed and worked through their own childhood pain. And unfortunately, Hurt people hurt people. So they, yeah, they might be having an attachment style conflict within themselves based Mm -hmm. on their own parents bonding or lack thereof. And they're bringing that because that's all they can bring. That's So I love when the research helps us maybe have a little more empathy for one another sure. because really the, getting angry and all men are out to, to be predators and to hurt women, that, that doesn't solve anything, doesn't help anyone. And I'm yeah. always trying to encourage people to try to lay back from that more a stance of being accusatory and try to be more empathic, but of course be savvy, right? Because we don't want to serve ourselves up on a silver platter to someone who is again, profoundly wounded and will probably spew some pain our way because of their own woundedness. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, will learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood, will identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals, and will together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com i'd love to work with you i love that you talk about oxytocin mm-hmm. because that's another uh, hormone that we need to be careful of i guess mindful of i should say and mm-hmm. understand how it works and use it for good and i'm always i'm one that encourages the women in my community be careful about bonding too early with someone yeah. and yeah. of course oxytocin yes it's skin on skin contact and but it also can happen from gazing into each other's eyes and that sort of thing i like what you brought up In looking at the research when partners are coupled up and how we can use this oxytocin to really protect and preserve the relationship to cherish one another in a way that maybe we think is maybe too simplistic. But you mentioned that even 20 second hugs that couples can greatly benefit from that. Speak to that a little bit if you would.
1: Yes, and and I love this. I'm not a, a hugger necessarily, certainly not with strangers, but I just <laughs> thought this was so fascinating because again, this was research not just in Western cultures, but in, internationally. There were multiple studies that reported the power of a hug in conversation that it actually has a physiological response of reducing our stress hormone. So, 20 seconds of that can release of, of hugging can release oxytocin, and so you know I was. Um, in a session with the clients, I'm a licensed psychologist, and she was just talking about uh, how her with her partner, they were just constantly arguing and bickering. And and again, it was very simple. It's what we would all experience. She wanted help cleaning up. He was stressed out at the end of the day and didn't really want to do that and so on. You know, the same kind of thing that we've all found ourselves in. And I said, well, why don't we try something instead of asking him, you know, what we're doing is we're both bringing high levels of cortisol into the conversation. How about instead of asking him for something, just hug for twenty seconds? And she just kind of looked at me like, "Really? That's what you're gonna ask me to right. do?" Um, but a week later, she said, "Oh my goodness! The way he's interacting with me has changed completely. He will come home right away and do all these things that I had, you know, been nagging him to do, and now I don't even have to say because." they start the day instead of bringing cortisol or stress into that conversation, they started instead with bringing oxytocin, that bonding. So the first thing they do is I said, you know, just if you can't, if you're not in a place where you can hug or you just emotionally don't feel like that because of you know frustration or whatever, at least touch, like touch each other's arms or hands or whatever that might be to facilitate. Like you talked about that contact to, um, to bring in that oxytocin and, I think that it's, it's so powerful to know that research has real world applications, that it can really make a difference for how we engage with the important people in our lives.
0: I've heard it. The marital therapist will give a couple homework that, okay, you can fight all you want this week, but when you're fighting, you have to hold hands and stare at each other. You can't like stomp off and slam doors. You have to literally have skin on skin contact. And of course that alone would diffuse not only because they're within close proximity and they're gazing at each other, but that oxytocin has to be working to, to soothe and to act as a bomb and to try to uh, dissipate. <laughs> yeah. Do you use that, that technique as well? Uh, no, not yet, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as we're talking about couples, let's speak to the Fisher and Aaron study, which I remember coming across this research. I can't remember what book I was reading, but it was when I was engaged. And it was so encouraging to know that Helen Fisher finds that, yes, you can stay in love. And yes, there's going to be an ebb and flow. And what I love is that the notion that those fireworks that you feel early Mm -hmm. on in your relationship and maybe as newlyweds, and then of course there's, well, the honeymoon's over. And I hate that because I didn't want to believe that this love that I felt so passionate about and so strongly about, I didn't want to believe that that had to dissipate. I just wanted to believe that it could last. And Helen Fisher and Arthur Aaron have found that yes it really can last and maybe it won't feel the exact same but right. according to the 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 brain mm-hmm. research we're seeing that we do have those levels of dopamine and they are active in very similar manner and then there's the bonus of the bonding that yeah. we can see from brain imaging can you speak to that study
1: Yes, it's like you're getting a two for one. And so this particular study, they they looked at couples who'd been married on average for twenty-one years. Um so pretty remarkable. And they also reported, you know, being intimate about twice a week or so on again on average across these couples. And what was interesting is they put them in a in a scanner, a brain scanner. And they showed them a photo. They were asked to bring in a photo of their partner, their loved one. Um, And they had, you know, a contrast where they would bring in a photo of a friend or an acquaintance as a comparison. So they could actually look to see what's happening in the brain with these different photos of different people. And they found that even what they called long-term romantic love. So even in couples that had been together for 21 plus years, They showed similar uh, levels of dopamine in the same brain areas that we were just talking about, that reward that we get, as well as that motivation to keep that relationship going. And so I I think, like you said, it's very positive. It's very encouraging to know that um, that that first of all, that giddy sense of joy and happiness you find in early stages can be maintained and can still be evident, even after 20 plus years of being with a partner. Uh, that is still motivating you to want to keep it going. So it doesn't have to diminish or die out in any sense. And as you mentioned, too, another pattern shows up, which is this idea of a bonding, that oxytocin again, showing that sense of closeness also kicks in. And it's so powerful that some researchers suggest it's even a painkiller. In fact, uh, Helen Fisher and uh, Arthur Aron, who you just mentioned, the same researchers, found that it activates a part of the brain in the opioid brain region. So the, the part of the brain that manages anxiety and pain. So, you know, when you're you know, feeling anxious and you're like, man, if only I could just talk to them, I know I would feel calmer. Mm. There's brain science to show that when you are talking to your loved one, to your partner, it's actually calming you down, bringing that anxiety, even that pain level down.
0: Yeah, it almost gives me goosebumps because it's just, it's what we really want, right? It's what we're desiring. And I encourage my community to never settle because the research shows that, yes, I mean, what you just spoke to speaks to the, the power of a healthy, happy partnership that after 20 years, you not only can still feel those sparks, but you also have, you basically have a prophylactic for anxiety and depression, which is amazing. But at the same time, we know that people in unhappy marriages are way less happy than single people. So we have to be so discriminating with our selection process, which again, you speak to so many elements of this in the book. And I know that wasn't the main thrust of the book or the main thesis, but I love that you wove in a little dating relationship stuff (laughs) because women, we love to talk about that stuff.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love & Life family. Let's also just as we wrap up here talking about what makes for a happy partnership, you talk about the positive illusory bias, which Mm -hmm. I love this because (laughs) again, when we talk about our cognitive processes what is reality? You know, you think about the cliche, is the glass half full or half empty? Well, the reality is there's half a glass of water, but the powerful beneath all this is the perception. What are we projecting onto that reality in front of us? And here in the positive illusory bias, it really doesn't matter if I'm any happier than these other couples. But if I think I am, it's, right. it's, it's, it proves to be beneficial for my satisfaction in my marriage or my partnership. So can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, so a simple way to frame that positive illusory bias that I talk about in the book is
1: wear rose-colored glasses when you look at your partner. And if you are in a long-term relationship and you want to keep staying in that long-term relationship, that's your goal, um, seeing your partner as a glass half full is a great way to do that. So instead of say, walking in the front door and thinking, oh man, they didn't clean up. And I was hoping they would say, you know what, they just worked hard all day so that we can have resources to enjoy ourselves as in our relationship in our you know, and do these fun activities and so on. So what is the positive that you can see in your partner instead of shifting gears? And we know that this activates Different parts of the brain. When and there is such a power in even saying this out aloud, and that's where that gratitude comes in, uh, by saying thank you for doing uh, one, two, three, mm. four, five. and I link that into the five to one ratio that for every negative thought or statement that you say to your your partner, your loved one make sure that you have five positive things so that that balance is always tipped to the positive. And we know that when we look at the positive with the optimism side of the brain is our language center, the left side of the brain. And there's lots of research to even look at, you know, eye tracking and so on to see that that left part of the brain is being activated. So it's important To use words, not just, you know, say, yeah, yeah, I think good things about them, but actually articulate that. Because what that does is increase that muscle in your brain in the same way that, you know, we run or keep ourselves physically active and fit. Use that language muscle in the brain, that rose-colored muscle in your brain by actually saying to them, thank you for all these great things and be specific try to be as concrete as possible instead of just saying oh you're wonderful or thank you what are you grateful for what are you seeing positive in them that you can share with them and just and we do know from brain imaging studies that part of the brain becomes activated more easily so it almost becomes automated so when you look at a situation you don't have to work so hard to see the positive in them it just becomes natural to see these wonderful positive things in your partner
0: i love that It speaks to neural plasticity, as we've spoken to also of of neural pathways that we can reinforce so that our positive framing of our partner can become our default mode. It gets harder for us to be critical of our partner. And so I encourage women to think about when you're dating, you want to be detached and you want to be more clear in your in your view and your vantage point. You want to be a little discriminating and and discerning and also critical at times, because if this person's demonstrating something to you. That isn't a fit, we want to. That's what dating is for. We want to know this isn't a fit. So I'm gonna part ways. But once we've made that commitment, now <laughs> it's time to see anything negative. Let's reframe it. Can we find a positive element? You know, all our strengths are also weaknesses. So if you see a weakness in your partner, once you're committed, can you see the positive? Is there some strength that's also in conjunction with that trait? And those reframes that you were speaking to, okay, the house was a mess when I came home, but that's because he was working so hard for our family. He's so committed, trying right. to provide for us. So those subtle reframes that we do, we do all day, every day, if, if we're intentional about it, and it can make all the difference. That's right. That's right. And you know, it's, again, it's like a
1: muscle. The more we do it, the easier it will be to shift that uh, balance to the more positive, optimistic side of our brain. Absolutely.
0: I love that those tips and tricks that they don't have to sometimes we get so overwhelmed, we think it has to be this major relationship overhaul. And as you spoke to even with the couple that you were working with, you're like, let's just start with a hug 20 seconds and see what happens. And you saw some profound change, which I think is encouraging, because it can sometimes feel that there's going to have to be so much work, and it's going to be so arduous. And then we go, hmm, actually, we can start implementing small little changes that can really have a profound difference. So can you talk about the oxytocin with the study in Germany? That was really fascinating to me. Yeah, so this one was a study uniquely just looking at men,
1: but I, you know, I feel like this is helpful for women again who are looking for a male partner in a in a romantic relationship. And so these researchers in Germany, they had uh, young heterosexual men, and they uh, al- they gave them some oxytocin via a nasal spray, which is ethically approved in Germany. And so they they used it again as a, they had a control group, so half of them had the oxytocin. The other half had a saline solution as a control. And then they brought in a beautiful female researcher here who just, you know, just smiled, asked questions. What here was so interesting is that the men who had oxytocin sprayed up their nose and were in a relationship were more likely to keep their physical distance from the attractive women. In other words, they would place themselves about four to six inches Further away, because for them, that oxytocin almost signaled to them, like, hey, I'm in a committed relationship. I don't need to be uh, sending out signals that I'm available to this beautiful female researcher. So, again, hugging your loved ones in a romantic relationship has the added benefit of keeping that bond. Between the two of you, making that your thing and helping them feel, again, more connected to the relationship with you and more likely to value that again in, you know, and again, this is obviously in a lab type situation, but it's a nice indicator of how oxytocin also protects a relationship.
0: Yes, and... Even if your love language isn't physical touch, I would recommend let's, let's err on the side of too much physical contact in a marriage and partnership. My husband always says that men are very simple and I go, well, you know, there's the five love languages, which we've taken, of course, and had fun with that. And we, we line up exactly, which makes it easier for us because we both want to give and receive love in the same way. But he says men are simple. They want affection and appreciation, Mm. appreciation for the work that they do to provide for the family, appreciation for their contribution for everything, right? And affection, yeah. which again, I th- I don't want to simplify man. I don't think that's helpful, but just from a man's point of view, my mm-hmm. man says that that affection piece yeah. is really important. And so f- to remind women that, Yeah, if you want your man, because he's going to encounter a lot of really attractive women throughout Mm -hmm. the day. That's how life is. If you want him to be less interested in getting close to that woman, research shows that hug, giving him that boost of oxytocin can make a big difference.
1: Yes. And what's fascinating is that same study we were just talking about showed that that was true even with photographs of beautiful women. And of course, we're so inundated with visual imagery, you know, social media, online, not just in real life. And, and that same uh, bonding offers that protective mechanism even for online visual images as well.
0: Which is a big concern, obviously, because like you said, the ability back in the pioneer days, the ability to see a beautiful woman, it could be few and far between if someone's on a covered wagon going for miles out and through Colorado, but now the ability to see a beautiful woman is in your the palm of your hand with your phone. So if you want to protect your relationship, let's let's use science to protect and, and nurture our relationships. Dr. Holloway, I could go on and on with you. I have like 25 more pages of notes, but I want to be respectful of your time. As we wrap up, can you share kind of what you would hope that a reader would ultimately derive from spending the time to get into this very engaging and very fun and very practical book that you've written, Think Like a Girl? What would you hope the reader would take away?
1: I would like the reader to take away two things. One is that an awareness of how their brain works, whether it's in stressful decisions, whether it's in picking a romantic partner or leadership in the workplace, And the second thing is I would like them to have an appreciation. What do they appreciate about their brain and how can they lean into the strengths rather than, you know, as we started off feeling that it's this myth that, oh, I'm just emotional or I'm just something negative. So replace that with an appreciation for how powerful and wonderful our brain works.
0: Yes. And how we can harness it. And like you said, (laughs) lean into our unique Uh, ways of, of functioning as women and lean into those and make sure that we are able to enhance those strengths. And then if there are any kind of weaknesses, quote unquote, or areas where we aren't quite as developed, that we can recognize that neuroplasticity allows us to enhance pathways that we want to use to fortify us emotionally and as we're in the workplace and in our relationships and all of the above. Dr. Alloway, thank you so much. And please let listeners know where to buy the book and where to find more of your work and uh, leave them with your social handles and all the things.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, they can find my books wherever books are sold online, uh, in person in bookstores. They can find me online on tracyalloway.com. And I would love if they would connect with me on social media at Dr. 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 Tracy Alloway. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and I would love to be able to continue conversations with them there as well.
0: wonderful. Thank you again so much. I've so enjoyed this conversation. I find it very valuable and I know my listeners will as well. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is think like a girl. This is the type of episode I'm going to listen to 10 times because there's so many great nuggets of research wisdom to help us all level up in dating, relationships, in our careers, so much goodness. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you as always for joining me and giving me a portion of your day. If you wanna connect deeper, be sure you're signed up for my newsletter. That's where you can get my Empowered Dating Playbook for free and stay connected with me. Each week I send you a love and life newsletter and recently I've been sharing, kind of fleshing out some of the personal connection I have to the topic we've covered on the podcast that week. So that's available to anyone who's interested. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abral and until next time, make it a great week.